Um, when uh, Gil asked me about doing a presentation on pastoral counseling, I thought, I need help. Um, I'm, uh, I have uh, many years of experience in uh, practicing and teaching Zen, but not so much with pastoral counseling. Uh, so, although I'm happy to share what I know, I thought it'd be good to have some, some help from people who are more experienced. Gail is one of the people who is, who is more experienced. She's been uh, one of the teachers at the Lloyd Center for Pastoral Counseling in uh, San Anselmo. She's a Christian minister, and she can uh, tell us something about the uh, background and development of the whole field and discipline of pastoral counseling from her perspective. And I should confess that uh, we're also buddies studying internal family systems. And uh, she's been one of my supervisors in my own training in pastoral counseling. So I'm going to pass this to you, Gail. Thank you very much. I think I'll clip it on here. Somehow. How's that? Okay. I love the... um, Framing us as hungry blades of grass. I sit here with you and feel like an excited and hungry blade of grass uh, with all of you as hungry blades of grass. And as we went around the room and I got a sense of all of the devotion and service that's in this room, I felt the field quicken. And so in addition to just having a sense of personal connection with each one of you, I feel a a lot of life in the field, which I wanted also to just honor. And the reason that I wanted to honor that is because I'm going to be talking about something that in the Christian uh, tradition we call the soul. And um, uh, we have a word for the soul of a group or the soul that arises in this kind of a setting that might be the quickening of the um, field, and we call that the Holy Spirit. And so there's a life and a soul in the field today. Another way that we could talk about the, the life of this field that we're creating today is um, the true nature of what is arising uh, or the presence so just by way of using, having definition of terms, I want to say that we can talk about, when I say soul, you may want to inter, uh, translate it as true nature or presence with a capital P um, for yourself. Uh, I've been a Christian minister for 25 years, actually, no, 26 this month. Um, so I'm one of the grandmothers. Uh, when I was ordained, there weren't very many women in my tradition. And uh, I want you to know that my tradition is the United Church of Christ. And we're a peace and justice church. And um, it's uh, actually one of the churches that is on, in the forefront of what is being called progressive Christianity. And I just want to mention to you that I'm going to start talking about something that's, uh, that started a long time ago, which I think has really evolved into what today is uh, 
being called progressive Christianity. Um, it's hard to be to be um, to not be theistic in a theistic tradition. <laughs> so <laughs> I say to my colleagues, how do we preach a non-theistic theology? It's an oxymoron. It's happening in Christianity, and it's happening um, uh, in progressive Christianity, of which I am a part. And it's very exciting for me to be here today. But as I unfold the history of pastoral care and counseling for you in the Christian tradition, I wanted to say that because it feels to me like like it really is a, an unfolding that uh, has a direct connection with what started, believe it or not, in the year 400. In the year 400, Christian theologians started talking about taking care of the human soul. And those who were um, uh, in, in the role of the priesthood were actually caring for the human soul. And so they began talking to each other about how do we care for the human soul. And in those days, the intention was to um, cure the human soul. So they, we have writings as early as the year 400 where these clergy um, were talking about how to care for souls. And so there was so much talk about this that by the 1600s, it was really very difficult for the clergy to find a way to talk about the care of souls that hadn't already been written about and talked about. So there was a lot of activity from the year for, for those 1,200 years in, in the world of, of the clergy about curing the human soul. It was a really vigorous search um, and a vigorously written about um, and talked about um, topic. And in 16, in, in especially in England and the Americas, the, and most especially this country, as it was starting. Um, in 1618, there was a man uh, named Thomas Hooker who really made some inroads into this area. He was a pastor in Escher, England, and they have actually... Those of you who are in CPE know about verbatims uh, and uh, how they can be a drudgery, but how they really capture the heart of what happens uh, in, a, in a, a healing relationship. And so there's basically a verbatim between this guy, Thomas Hooker, and a woman by the name of Jean Drake, who lived in Escher, England. So we go way back. And Jean started to just be absolutely despondent, and she was a good girl. Her father, as was the custom in those days, told her who to marry, and she did it. And uh, after the birth of their first child, she went into utter despondency, and she started um, believing that she was possessed by the devil because she was no longer feeling like a good girl, and she didn't like being married to this man, and she didn't like even being a mother. And... Um, 
So, of course, everybody thought that there was something um, really wrong with her because she didn't want to do her duty. So she began to have stomach aches and headaches, and she saw this. So they called in the clergy, and a couple of clergy came and went, and they couldn't do a thing with her, and so they called Thomas Hooker. So she saw him from her upstairs room coming up the walk, and she locked her door, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't come out. And when they finally got the door open, she threw things at him. And he thereby moved into the house, and it took him three years to work, work with Joan. And at the end of it, they decided that her soul, they decided that her soul had been cured. So... <laughs> So it was um, it was a process that they actually recorded. So there are, there are some conver- this in this book. There's some conversations that uh, Thomas actually had with Joan. So he had a method. He finally came up with a new method that was called the answering method, and it combined inquiry with argument using scripture and Bible passages to convince the afflicted that they were okay. So um, when you said the, the Buddhist monk, I mean, the, the priest went around to the houses to uh, give people advice about their problems, this, was, this is a very early way of doing pastoral care and counseling uh, in, in the Christian tradition that you sort of tell people, What's wrong with them? You tell them how to fix their problem. And uh, they used scripture and syllogistic reasoning for this because, the, you know, they were creeping up on uh, the, the rational era when the logic and, ra- and uh, reason were really the only things that counted at all. And so um, Hooker finally did convince Joan. And so here's the syllogism. Um, her inner resistance and despairing thoughts were a sign of a broken heart. Okay? Premise one. A broken heart is a prelude to spiritual health. Therefore, her weakness was in fact her strength. So that syllogistic reasoning, we also call it today in modern psychology, a reframe. Right? So um, here's another, another one that, that he used to heal somebody. You have to, and actually I think he used this with Joan. Here's the syllogism. You have to partake in the Holy Spirit to sin against the Holy Spirit. So she thought she was a horrible sinner. Her anguish and her mental illness was around the fact that she felt she was a horrible sinner. So you have to partake in the Holy Spirit to sin against the Holy Spirit. You haven't partaken of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you're not qualified to commit an unpardonable sin. <laughs> so what are you moaning there for? You're not even, you know, get up out of your bed. You're not an unpardonable sinner. And so they had these, these ways of, um, of using logic, which was acceptable. It was acceptable for the men of the cloth to use logic to, and scripture to help. Um, people improve. So Hooker uh, started this process and he got a lot of credit for it. And um, 
at that time, the belief was that the main part of pastoral care was teaching and guidance. That's what it was. It was teaching and guidance. And for the most part, the context was in the church. Now, he moved into their house, but he was the pastor of the local church. And that's often how they did it. If they didn't have a parsonage, some you know, wealthy landowner would, um, would house the clergy, as you know. Um, and so that was convenient for that family and for Joan's healing. But the uh, dilemma, for the most part, as, they, as it was uh, understood at that time, the very early days of pastoral care and counseling, was um, uh, conflict with the supernatural and supernatural powers. And there was this very strict hierarchy, um, both in external systems and in internal systems. So, you know, men were above women, women were above children and all of that kind of stuff. But then once they went inside and began looking at the soul, they realized that there was a hierarchy inside as well. So they were um, working with the internal hierarchies and that was sort of their worldview. Now, they had competition. And the competition was um, with wizards and soothsayers. And wizard, now you know that Christianity is still today, in some cases, way down on uh, astrology, for, for example. And the reason goes way back to this early conflict and sort of competition that, um, that was going on with soothsayers and wizards who were also trying to heal the difficulty in people's lives, trying to help people deal with the conflicts that they had and the things that were causing their unhappiness and their illness. And they used charms and fortune telling and astrology and divination to take care of these problems. But logic and reason won the day. And um, I'm not going to go into the ugly ways that the church had of making sure that that happened. But here we all are. <laughs> the witches have been burned and um, the, the atrocities committed. But uh, logic won the day. And we have our current culture in America. Now, it, that was those kinds of... Um, ways of working with people were happening in England and in the United States or in the early Americas. Um, and what we really need to realize, especially as we turn the focus to what was happening in this country, is that um, pastoral care and all of the traditions that surround it are really rooted in an ancient introspective piety which was um, encouraged amongst Christian believers to examine their inner motives and align their actions with those of Christ. And Steve talked about that as central to his own faith journey when he recognized there was a discrepancy between his actions and what was going on inside he could not live with the inconsistency. And so we strive for
for that integration to align our actions and what's going on within us and to find the purity that we can use as the, um, the litmus test for, for, for how to bring our actions together with, um, with something that is good. So in Christianity, this was just absolutely um, relentless. That was, that was the whole focus was to go inside and examine and go inside and examine. And um, that's what happens with the, the sermon on Sunday morning. It's a way to sort of um, find something against which and towards which we can align ourselves to um, uh, purify and, and simplify and cleanse and um, come to a fuller understanding of the truth. So um, it made it quite a logical next step for Thomas Hooker to begin teaching meditation in the 1600s. Um, and he, I wanted to describe this to you because um, this early, early Christian understanding of meditation has taken great uh, roots in this country. And um, this, po- this process of Christian piety and the internal inquiry and investigation uh, really uh, tilled the fertile field for psychology to take such a, um, a deep root in the United States when it started to bubble up. And I think that a case could even be made for this being, this being part of the fertile ground for Western Buddhism, um, this Christian um, fer- fertile ground that was laid by this Christian piety. Um, Thomas Hooker said, and at this point he was wildly famous for the ways in which he effectively worked with the curing uh, and nurturing of souls. Thomas Hooker, teaching meditation, um, he said that it's the activity that uh, gives us a way to send our thoughts afar off. That's one thing he said about it. He said, it gives us an opportunity to revive a fresh, this is a quote, revive a fresh apprehension of things done long before. Another quote, it's a way of recalling and recounting our corruptions by serious meditation. We are helped, oh, it helps us to sew them all up together. So we can sew up all together our serious corruptions. And so we might call this the pro- that process of getting internal integration. Um, and of the present moment, he said this, because he, he, was, he was realized that, you know, you deal with the past, you de- you, it brings you into the present. So he said, it's the coasting of the mind and imagination into every crevice and corner of the moment. And it's where 
uh, it, it pries into every particular and takes a special view of the borders and confines of any corruption or condition that comes to be scanned. So this was in 1600. One of the most powerful religious thinkers of the day was teaching meditation and um, it had for these goals. So the goal of the introspection of pastoral care and meditation was to explore the ravages of sin and elevate hopes for spiritual growth. So that's what they were wanting people to do. Now, by 1740, there came a period called the Awakening. And this was a period where orators started to just really have a lot to say in um, temp, you know, um, temp revival meetings were part of that. And um, Christian preaching just exploded and really started to um, kind of, they started to sort of take the show on the road. And um, they, as a result, there were lots of uh, different thinkers with different ideas standing up and saying what they thought about stuff, and so they started to argue. And I don't know if you know this, but America, this country has been alive with religious fervor and hunger, spiritual hunger, uh, for a long time. And this was part of that spiritual hunger. And people just started fighting about it. We still fight about it. You know, prayer in school and blah, blah, blah. It goes on forever. But it's because we care. And it's because, uh, you know, we're hungry blades of grass in this country. There's a lot of spiritual hunger here. So in the 17, by 1740, there was this huge amount of, of um, discourse and arguing about all kinds of stuff. They were arguing about conversion and about the cure of the soul in particular which activated more and more interest in what eventually came to be pastoral care and counseling. So believers from New Hampshire to Georgia, because of this, you know, all of these ideas that were going around, um, wanted someone to help them interpret their thoughts and feelings. And so they were looking, seeking out, teachers and healers who could help them interpret what was going on inside of them. Why did they care? Well, because there was this wild um, discourse going around the whole country. Um, And people wanted to examine their conscience. So one preacher at that time, and, and people were conscripted. You know, you talked about all of a sudden, all these people are coming to me because they want help. And there was one preacher at this period, during this period, who said 30 people a day came to him uh, for that exact purpose. They wanted help examining their conscience. So they were working, and we have written documents of all of this. They were working with melancholy, which we call depression, of course, and terror and self-loathing and weeping sadness and suicide, thoughts of suicide, feelings of unworthiness, 
and um, wanting help for it. And they went to the clergy. Out of this time that lasted all the way through the 1700s came the, the, the theories of human psychology that were ripe and sort of moved into the 1800s and you know, psychology sort of started to grow and explode there. Um, and much of this was led by pastors, of, you know, these Christian pastors, because they're in the trenches, like all of you. As you were talking, I was thinking, you're in the trenches with the folk. You know, you're at the hospital bedsides, and you're with people when they die, and you're with them in their, you know, when crisis hits, and... Um, and working with them to help them have a deeper prayer life, and uh, in the in the AIDS wards, and and um, and so you're the ones that are there, and and it would it was as if the the psychology and the theories of human the ways humans work comes out of this kind of work that you're doing, and that's what happened. Right out of the 17th century into the 18th century. Um, and the authoritative text or volume of the day that came out of it was a book called um, Treatise Concerning Religious Afflictions that was written in 1765. Now, I think it's important here to notice something. The afflictions were coming out of the belief systems. So we put concepts and belief systems on ourselves, and folks, it doesn't matter if they're Buddhist, Christian, or, you know, astrology. We put these concepts on ourselves, and then our afflictions will arise to match that. So these particular afflictions happen to do with, um, you know, sin and the devil and all stuff, Christian. Um, and so pe- what people needed was a saving of their soul. So that's what pastoral care came to talk about. Two things. It, um, it was about redemption and saving the soul. But there was this new thing that, that grew up. And it was forming the character. So all of a sudden, it wasn't just about the soul or the religious spiritual part of a person they're talking about forming the character so <coughs> excuse me the goal for the faithful became virtue leaving a leading a virtuous life but also living comfortably in your life a level of comfort in terms of relationship and so forth so they began to argue about new stuff they began to argue about self-love. Is it okay to have self-love? And if so, what's the self? And if so, what does it mean to love it? And self-esteem and freedom of will and the concept of self became a huge topic. Um, And incidentally, they agreed for the most part that, yes, self-love is okay because it's accept, it was acceptable as a way to enable one to consecrate oneself to God and then to service. So they began to really live into that scripture about loving yourself as you love your neighbor. So 
In England, um, during the 1800s, 36 pastoral theology textbooks were published. So it began to be quite the topic. Um, And by the early 1800s, in this country, we had Princeton starting. We had Andover Seminary starting. um, And we had um, Harvard starting. And, of course, they all had seminaries attached to them. Um, And they all included pastoral theology, how to care for souls as an academic inquiry in an academic institution. And by 1839, when Yale was started, Yale was the first school to have a full-time teacher of practical theology, which was the discipline of this particular thing, of you know, working with the human soul and pastoral care, pastoral counseling. And it taught methods of private conversation. So the pastors were learning meaningful ways to have private, they called it private conversation. So it wasn't counseling, but it was private conversations. Clerical etiquette and judgment about religious experiences were taught. Now, during that period, pastors began, like all of us do when we're in the trenches, if you will, or, you know, in one-on-ones with people who are Uh, needing help, um, pastors quickly realized that they needed more more knowledge about human nature. They didn't have enough knowledge. And so they began wanting to, they began talking in the literature about, and ladies, women, this was, of course, before we were included in this. Um, They began wanting to have conversations that were more natural and manly, I quote, and less formal and stiff. So, you know, <laughs> you, you translate it. Um, and so pastoral theologians began to teach clergy to be cheerful or merry. So it was okay. You know, and we can think back in what we know about our American history, and you can think about the, the era when the clergyman's job was to, you know, have the whiskers and look as stern as absolutely possible. Well, they, they began to, you know, have these conversations about, well, maybe we ought to not just be stern and, and stiff and formal. Maybe we should be cheerful, merry, and more manly with each other. You know. <laughs> and that had some kind of a meaning. Um, so um, then we got the, um, oh, and pompous was part of that too, of course. So we got the clergy person then that began to be more winsome. <laughs> the rosy cheeks. Um, and, and devoid of the pompous solemnity that sort of characterized them, that they wanted to have be part of their role um, because they were growing in an an understanding for the need to have relationships, authentic relationships with their people. So by the end of the 19th century, by the end of the 1800s, um, psychology and psychotherapy began, you know, the, the Christian world was just ripe for that. 
And when psychology showed up, you know, Freud's the whole stuff and all of that, it, the, it was the Christian community in this country that was really ripe for that and just, just absorbed it, came right in and was assimilated by what was then Christian, liberal Christian theology. Um, and that liberal Christian theology, which by today's standards, of course, it wouldn't be considered liberal at all, but then it was um, liberal. And psychology and psychotherapy found its inroads into the Christian community, and that combined with a natural style, this natural style of being that the pastors had of being with the people in a relational sort of living side by side, shoulder to shoulder, in the vineyard of the Lord kind of stuff. Um, That was the earliest uh, ground for pastoral counseling. So this, the growth of this interest among pastoral theologians developed, and by the mid-20th century, which is, was like in the 1950s, um, pastoral counseling was officially born. And there were four men who were the fathers of pastoral counseling, uh, Seward Hilton, who was a Presbyterian, Carol Wise, who was Methodist, Wayne Oates, who was a Southern Baptist, and Paul Johnson, who was also a Methodist. So I just want to conclude by reading this one quote um, uh, or or a couple of things I want to read to you. Um, Gauged both by consumer demand and by the clergyman's self-evaluation, the chief business of religion in the United States had become um, and has long been the cure of souls. And that was really what was going on with pastoral counseling and why pastoral counselors, um, how it came to be. Then, um, so to, in, in summary, we, we have to um, really, we owe a, a debt to Protestant, uh, the Protestant past and the Protestant adaptation to the changing patterns of the culture. The Protestant clergy and the Protestant churches are really credited in the pastoral counseling movement with making it possible for this to arise. And um, the preoccupation with inwardness, rebirth, it's a huge theme in Christianity, conversion, revival, All of these things were uh, translated into secular psychological piety. And um, so um, that had a huge amount to do with it. And and here we are. In the 1960s, uh, AAPC was formed, and that's the American Association of Pastoral Counselors. Um, of which I am a member, and then the, and then they started it started to branch out. There was also CPE, which is Clinical Pastoral Education. So CPE, some of you said you have CPE hours. <laughs> that is the clinical um, institutional branch 
of pastoral care and counseling. And then AAPC, which is the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, is the direct one-on-one formal uh, counseling where you sit uh, together with a pastoral counselor. So there's um, always conversation about those two. And the other two things that are in pretty much constant dialogue are what is pastoral care, what is pastoral counseling, and what is the difference. And it's not an easy question, but that might be one of the breakout groups that we have this afternoon. Thank you, Gail. Welcome. When I, asked, when I asked Gail to do a little background on pastoral counseling, I had no idea she was going to go back to the to the fifth century. Oh uh, no! Got to go there. You're going to go back to about 1950. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to. I think it's important for those of us who are uh, practicing Buddhists here in America, in the West, to actually know something about the background uh, uh, that is built into our culture uh, that we may be unaware of. And uh, so this has been quite helpful for me just to hear what Gail, uh, Gail had to say and gives me quite a bit of food for further reflection. And, uh, and I'd like to introduce Jaku Kinst. Uh, my Dharma sister, um, and uh, she is a, a Zen teacher, an ordained priest, and a psychotherapist. And I asked her to uh, talk some about how she understands these different roles for herself and how she keeps from getting too confused in the different situations that she's in. So um, I've, I've uh, long admired Jaku's ability to be very clear and thoughtful, and uh, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say. Yeah. Well, with that kind of setup, I hope I do pretty well here. Does that work? Um, Uh, so when Steve asked me to do this, I, I kind of stepped back and thought, what is it that we're really approaching here? What do we mean by um, spiritual care? What are the different forms of it? What are the different factors? Um, so what I'd like to do first is <clears throat> talk a, a tiny bit about myself so you know who I am. And then um, kind of dive into this huge topic. Um, actually, first, what I'd like to do is read you a quote. This is um, a heart teaching for me. It's from Shanti Deva, and I think it describes our effort. May I be the protector of the unprotected and the caravan leader for travelers. May I be the boat the causeway, the bridge for those who long to reach the further shore. May I be a light for those who need of a light. May I be a servant for those in need of service. For in body beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling jewel. So this is the spirit that we carry in to these different forms that we might take. Does that work? Mm -hmm. Can you still hear me? 
because I have a soft voice. So if you move it up. How's that? Is that better? Okay. I was going to stand up, but I think I might strangle myself. Okay. So um, I did an undergraduate degree in psychology and then turned my back on it and discovered Zen. And before I knew it, I was up to my ears. I um, studied, ordained, practiced at Tassajara. And in the middle of my training, I looked around and I realized that myself and other people were struggling with things that hours and hours of Zazen did not appear to be addressing. Um, And I started becoming interested in the practice of psychology again from a different perspective. And after completing my priest training, I um, went back to school, got a degree as an MFT, And as I was doing that process, I kept making these connections with Buddhist training, Buddhist studies, Buddhist psychology. Um, And then I went on to do a Ph.D. in uh, Buddhism and psychotherapy. So my Ph.D. is an investigation of the ways in which Western psychology can help us to understand particular processes that can happen in uh, the practice of Buddhism, in particular the ways in which the ways we develop trust in ourselves in the Buddha Dharma, the ways in which the self is transformed, and um, the ways in which we can engage fully in the world. So these were this was an area of interest for me. Um, I also discovered a field called contemplative psychology, which I now teach, and it is a um, investigation of what it means to follow any religious or meditative path. That what happens when we do that? What are the factors that are actually important to us? Um, uh, also, as a part of that, I um, trained as a chaplain at UCSF Medical Center, for those of you that are there, in, this, in the CPE program. And I was um, privileged to do some teaching with Tibetan teachers, um, Anipema Chodron, for one who um, I learned much from, and I'll use some of that language uh, in what I'm talking about today. Um, So my life now is a combination of uh, uh, Dharma teaching, mostly in Santa Cruz, has been down there for a few years, and um, teaching in a graduate program, and um, seeing psychotherapy clients some of whom are Dharma practitioners and some of whom could care less about Buddha Dharma or anything spiritual, which I find refreshing, actually. (laughs) Okay. So. The way I think of this is... um, um, There's these various roles. There's these various dimensions of how we express the um, Buddha Dharma. And in this, I will borrow from Tibetan teachings um, the idea of um, relative and absolute bodhicitta practices. Okay, bodhicitta is our awakened heart and mind. And uh, two ways that we can approach that are from the relative means where we actually transform character. 
We actually work with the mind directly. These are meta practices, compassion practices, these kinds of things where we actually work directly, directly with the afflictive states of the mind. The other aspect is um, absolute bodhicitta practices, which essentially is zazen or some just sitting practice. So we can see that this is one dimension that we work on. All of us in our lives as practitioners, or all people, live in the middle of a mandala. We live in the middle of a mandala of uh, care. And in, the, in that mandala, there are different spokes and different roles. So one role or one spoke we might think of as the therapist. One role or one spoke we might think of as the teacher. One role or one spoke we might think of as um, our Dharma brother and sister, our dog. All of these things, all of these relationships support us. Yeah? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So we can think about how do we hold a position in the mandala? What is that position? How do we move from position to position? And how do we do that always, always, always aiming at reducing suffering in ourselves and others? So to, to my mind, I'll say one thing about the nature of the self, because this is, again, a huge topic. We could spend a year together at least. Um, there's a lot of language about no self, which I find uh, is one of the most profoundly misunderstood teachings that our dear Lord Buddha gave. (laughs) Because uh, many people believe that that means that no self exists, which of course is true. Um, The self, the deluded self that we usually experience ourselves to be does not exist. But that does not mean that no self exists. We know this, right? As one of my teachers says, you have to know which mouth to put your fork in. (laughs) And that we look around in our lives and experience truly mature practitioners, we understand that there's a vital living presence there, that there is personality, there are gifts and talents and drawbacks. This This is an alive, unique human being, right? And that's who we are, too. So in my mind, the, um, the point of practice, if I dare speak that way, is to not obliterate the self, but to transform it. So the self becomes a shift from this greedy, grasping, deluded, frightened, um, clinging location of an organizing principle because that's all the self is, is an organizing principle, to the site of realization and generosity and compassion. So the structure of the self transforms from a structure of clinging and fear and war to a site of generosity and flexibility and transformation. Okay? To me, that's the fundamental process. And the question is, how does that happen? 
So we live in the middle of this mandala doing this project. Lifelong, multiple lifetimes, right? We've got lots and lots of time to do this. (laughs) And we, moment by moment, day by day, say, well, who's going to help us? Our dog's going to help us. Our teachers are going to help us. Our Dharma brothers and sisters are going to help us. The cups are going to help us. The grass is going to help us. Every single thing is going to help us, particularly difficult situations. They're really great teachers, right? And our job is to take responsibility for this process. That's what we have to do. That's our job in this lifetime if we sign up for this particular event. So we are in the middle of our own mandala and we are also... Uh, a fixture in the, so to speak, in the mandalas of everyone around us. Right? So we can be flexible in the roles that we take. But when we take on a certain position in the mandala, we need to make sure that we do our job. This is my feeling. So when I am um, taking on the role of teacher, my experience has been um, now, this is where we get into the relative and the absolute. Are you guys with me on this? Yeah. Right? Good. Okay. This is where we get into the relative and the absolute, right? Because there's no, in a way, this is all on a continuum. This is not like, okay, you're slotted in here and you're slotted in here and you're slotted in here. It's a knot. <clears throat> But we're always, in in whatever position we're in, we're always trying to respond and say, what can I do in this moment to alleviate suffering in myself and others? What can I do in this moment? Over and over and over again, we're asking that question, right? Now, we can draw on many resources. Sometimes we sit down, you know. It's like, what is it that Chino Roshi said? Um, Blanche also said, when you realize the, the, the awareness and um, beauty of this life and that you have is completely your responsibility how you manifest it, how you live it. It's such a big responsibility. Naturally, such a person sits down for a while. <laughs> So this is absolute bodhicitta, okay? This is like, poom. It's like the vertical dimension, poom. There's no bottom, you know, just right there, okay? And then, and then we get up. <laughs> we get up and we go into the kitchen and somebody's left a dirty cup and we deal with our annoyance and we deal with all of these things, right? And that's the relative. So um, the teacher occupies the role of both. Advocating, always advocating for the importance of uh, absolute bodhicitta, the practice of, in my language, zazen. But also addressing, addressing the needs of the individual person. And this is, I think, where pastoral counseling can come in, or the way we think of it. The needs of the individual, how when this person is suffering in this particular way, how do we respond? How do we respond? Now, we're very lucky in that we've got a long history of Buddhist traditions with a lot of various possibilities. 
For example, if somebody is struggling with anger, they can go to Chapter 6 of Shantideva. They can use compassion practices. They can use meta practices. There's just innumerable ways in which we can deal with our afflictive states and our difficulties and learn that in doing that we are relating to a teacher. That these difficulties are actually opportunities that we, where we actually can deepen our capacity to be compassionate. So do you see this difference? And the teacher can occupy a role of, um, of presenting the, the teachings in that way. Now, um, because I am in the Soto Zen tradition, I believe that um, there's also at least an element of the teacher that the teacher occupies um, a rather subversive position. Um, because the teacher is advocating uh, a rule of life, so to speak, that is not a part of the dominant paradigm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Inner, our inner values are not being dominated by the consumerist culture, or by the usual ways we see things. There's something quite radical about the Buddhist teachings. And a teacher's responsibility is to advocate for that. In a sense, it's to go below the self, and to not obliterate the self, but to kind of point through the self with the teachings. That's a teacher's responsibility. So, in a way, in my opinion, uh, the teacher should never be tamed. The teacher should always have a little bit of the trickster, a little bit of throwing things up in the air. Yeah? Because the aim is to hopefully very skillfully point through the self in a way. Um, and there's a certain kind of agreement that happens uh, when you relate to somebody that you identify as a teacher. There's a certain agreement about what you're up to. What you're up to is the study of the Buddha Dharma. What the teacher's responsibility is to the best of their ability to represent and express that teaching in their lives and in their talks and in the way they engage. Right? Now, the other job that I do is a psychotherapist. The, we can think of this in terms of archetypes. Are you all familiar with archetypes? Anybody that's not familiar with archetypes? Okay, good. Um, we can think of archetypes, this is a kind of union psychological language, but it's quite applicable, I think, as like... Um, ways to describe certain um, embodiments of certain qualities or certain dimensions of our human life. For example, there could be the archetype of the mother or the archetype of the monastic or the archetype of the father. And they're not a particular person. They're kind of just a, 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 an ideal that we relate to. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So we can think of uh, the difference between the teacher and the psychologist or the psychotherapist as, uh, as holding two different places in the mandala and also as representing two different archetypes. So the teacher is the teacher archetype, is the monastic archetype, is the um, trickster in some ways. 
The psychologist or the psychotherapist is a healer. The counselor is a healer. That's what you're there for. You're there to bring all of your skills to this care of a soul. All of your skills to heal, to nourish, to make whole, and to support a a maturing, a ripening um, integration in the self. Does Does that make sense? So... It's not that there's no, uh, there's no overlap between these two. There are. In my own experience, um, as a teacher, I rely on my training as a psych- psychotherapist. Um, I feel very benefited by it at times, being trained to listen in a certain way, being trained to um, know when to refer somebody to a psychotherapist, Um, being trained to watch my own inner responses and uh, notice countertransference, notice ways in which I might be getting in the way of the process. Things like that I'm very grateful for. Um, And it's not that I don't work with psychological issues as a teacher. I do, but I do it very clearly from a dharma point of view. In other words, if someone is struggling with anger, I do not talk to them about their angry father. I do not go back into their history. I do, however, recommend compassion practices, work with presence with this afflictive emotion, understand the teachings of emptiness in in how you work with that. And a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of what I do is deal with the violence that I consider to be endemic in most of our minds. So compassion practices and learning with what mind do you come back to this breath? Can you identify a compassionate presence in that mind? That kind of thing. Yeah? In As a psychotherapist, uh, it's not unusual to have religious or spiritual issues arise. Um, but as a psychotherapist, I am there to support the spiritual growth of my client in whatever way it manifests. Now, does that sometimes mean that we talk about the, the uh, cruel God image that they have? Yes. Does that mean that we go into this but... Especially if I'm working with a Buddhist practitioner, I really want them to have a teacher that they're working with. And I make it absolutely clear, first of all, I don't care if they ever sit sazen. And second of all, I am not their teacher. So we really separate those things. They have a different teacher. Then we can pull on the Buddha Dharma and we can talk and work it out. And especially people that come to me who have had difficult experiences during Sashin or some other trouble then we would go into their what's happening in their psyche what's their history what's their personal history work with it in that way that is something I would not do in a role as a Zen teacher so is this making sense this this difference between the two and so it's not like there's no overlap and in a way I see pastoral I see myself in some ways as a psychotherapist 
in fact, one of my, my clients recently said, I think what we're doing together is pastoral counseling. And I thought, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. Because there's some way in which we're folding the Dharma together with um, uh, my own psychological training and approaching things in terms of healing the self. Right? So let me look at my notes and see if there's anything else. I wanted to say. Mm, oh, so um, one other thing I just wanted to mention was um, the, my own experience as being a, ch- a chaplain and the differences I saw in that. Um, when I was a chaplain, I was just a chaplain. I wasn't a Buddhist chaplain. When I walked into somebody's room, I was there for their spiritual care, whatever it was. And um, that led to some really wonderful conversations at times. Um, And I experienced myself as a companion, very much a companion to that person. Um, Not a teacher, not a psychotherapist, but a companion there to hold hands, to listen, to support, to encourage, um, to bring whatever presence I could. Um, And because by far most of the people that I saw were not Buddhist um, that had to do with supporting them in their own belief which ranged from uh, Christian, Jewish Sufi earth based all kinds of things but the feeling I had was very much of of being a companion and a support um Oh, I'll say one thing about Jizo Bodhisattva. Any of you familiar with Jizo Bodhisattva? Um, Jizo Bodhisattva made a vow that he would, he, if we can say she too, would um, go into any realm, hell realm, endlessly, if it took, to um, bring ease to suffering beings. So every every station on this mandala in terms of being a helper is Jizo Bodhisattva. Is taking the, the taking on the willingness to go into the hell realms, to go into the onco- the pediatric oncology wards where someone has just lost their baby, to going into the prisons, to going into all these places where we actually bring the loving presence of the Buddha Dharma. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, I wanted to say one other thing about resources and other traditions, which has been a really important part of my own uh, training, not just in psychology, but in contemplative psychology and uh, spiritual direction and is that um, most of the texts and dialogues that I've had have been um, with um, either current or formerly ordained Christian folks and um, one very dear friend who's a rabbi 
And I have found this enormously um, helpful to access texts and um, practices that have, you know, that we can just be clueless about. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad you're here. We can be just clueless about these ancient resources that are there for us that we don't know about unless we open up and reach out and say, please teach me. Because we can transform these um, into the language of the Buddha Dharma. Um, so, mm. so let's see. One other thing I want to say has to do with humility and humor. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> just that we we need it desperately (laughs) humility in the sense of uh, one of my favorite authors Thomas Merton says uh, humility is being uh, willing to be completely who you are which is a kind of koan yeah (laughs) and um, humor is our willingness to to find uh, joy in this life which of course is one of the uh, the root of one of the four abodes of the Buddha right? sympathetic joy you have to have joy before you can have sympathetic joy so um, so this has to do with nourishing and uh, taking care of ourselves as we continue to give and train ourselves in that way um, it's 12.05 and I believe Tony wanted to say something before we end? Before, before we end. Um, let me just uh, add a couple of, a couple of comments uh, about the Saki. Or any particular... Uh, yeah, any, any questions for any of us uh, that we'd like to just, while they're fresh, you know, mention Can, can we use the mic, too? Um, uh, David? Just behind you, and then you'll, you'll be next. Okay. Um, you mentioned briefly about counseling and um, being a companion. Well, I thought that was very interesting to distinguish uh, 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 chaplaincy, co- companionship, rather than uh, therapy or uh, or direct dharma transmission kind of thing. Um, but you also mentioned getting into their spiritual life, and and that to me is is a, it's a fine point. I can go in there and with hospice patients or with patients in the hospital and be their companion. And uh, sometimes it works. You know, it gets really interesting and into uh, more significant, meaningful conversations. But sometimes just it sort of stays in that buddy realm of companionship. And I just wondered if you have any any strategies about how uh, about um, deepening the conversation. Um. Can I just finish? Uh, what I'd like to do, so that we don't take another hour before mm-hmm. lunch, is maybe ex- ask questions, maybe a, a quick, short clarification, maybe, or maybe even just hold the questions and come bring them back to this uh, to our afternoon meeting. Well, is that okay with people? Yeah. Can we just hold the questions and yeah, then? Maybe we hold the questions because I mean we ask the questions just so that we, we hear them. We hear the questions, 
and we can reflect on them, and then and then that'll be part of uh, the grist for our, our afternoon sessions. Okay. Okay. So, since that one was addressed, should we write them? Should we write them up here? Well, I think we can just we'll make notes here. Okay. So the first one was. Uh, uh, this is more strategies for working with the and chaplaincy in terms of uh, you know how you handle matters about going deeper into the mm-hmm. spiritual. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, um, I had just said two questions. One, you said um, that you would know when to refer somebody to a psych- psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of the factors that, that would be helpful. And then the other one, the other question is, so you mentioned Jizo, and I wonder from your perspective, which hat does Jizo wear? <laughs> That's really that's really easy. All hats. All hats. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. okay. Others. I uh, just wanted to um, kind of deepen a little into what we mean by spiritual, because uh, I find that sometimes uh, using the word spiritual or being overtly spiritual uh, is helpful, and sometimes it isn't. And so I'd like to just kind of um, deepen into what, what, what do we mean when we say we do spiritual work or we are operating in a spiritual way? Okay. Uh, my question is a little about the uh, potential ethical issues when a patient is discussing their sense of demons or their understanding of their this is in chaplaincy their understanding of their illness as punishment mm-hmm. and my approach is so drastically different from mm-hmm. theirs I want to support their faith journey and not I'm not so sure about subverting it, and yet my version of what is true is seemingly different from where they're coming from. And this is particularly in, a, in, the, in the role of uh, chaplain. chaplain. Okay. Are there others? Yeah, uh, Gail, you mentioned that uh, afflictions will rise to meet our concepts, and uh, I think you were uh, you're kind of talking about that in relation to the care seeker, and uh, I assume that it's also true with the caregiver. So if I if I come in as the as a chaplain as a Buddhist with certain assumptions, you know, certain beliefs that kind of uh, form me as a Buddhist, what uh, you know, I'm wondering what uh, afflictions I will see as a Buddhist in the patient as opposed to like what afflictions I might see coming from a more Christian background. You know? And um, also I'm wondering if, uh, if you think uh, Buddhist chaplains and spiritual care providers need, uh, need new spiritual assessment models or if the, the ones that the Christian tradition has brought to us are uh, kind of appropriate. And um, I'm also wondering if, if uh, Buddhist pastoral counseling is something that you think is like necessary, or are there are the uh, are the the spiritual needs of uh, care seekers being met uh, by people who consider themselves Christian pastoral counselors? Like, I'm wondering what uh, what you think uh, 
you know, Buddhist practitioners can bring, bring to this field of a field of a pastoral counseling and chaplaincy and whatnot that that maybe the folks from more Christian tradition uh, can't bring, maybe. Anybody else? Okay. Good question. You got that? Mm-hmm. Over there. I'd just be interested in hearing kind of the logistics of these different training programs, the time involved, the cost involved, uh, the period of time and years and days, et cetera. <laughs> so we can address that in the Jackie, you began saying uh, you were a Zen teacher and priest and psychotherapist, and then you talked about being a teacher and being a psychotherapist and being a chaplain. Where does priest fit into your mandala? Okay. We've got another one. All right. Um. Uh, I was just wondering about the um, division between psychotherapist and teacher and why that has to be such separate worlds for you have mentioned that because I don't think that that is intuitive or intrinsic. Um, I wonder if that's part of the training or why it has to be that way. Okay. That's some good questions. Um, okay. Yeah, it's almost time. Um, what time are we coming back? <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought we'd take an hour for a lunch break. <laughs>